Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello everybody and welcome to Midweek Motorsport Series 13, episode 34. I'm John Heindorf, it's just after midday here in California, which means 8 o'clock in the UK. And uh, a bit of a different programme tonight. Uh, we have all the usual features except Tim Gray who's busy well, being on holiday frankly at the moment but I do have Nick Damon our Formula One correspondent Nick Damon good evening good evening John not good evening Tim good evening everybody you're quite loud there um, oh, well you know me I, I, I'm gonna do the the uh, the jingle with the the full thing and all of that stuff uh, and the, no no I am gonna do that uh, and we'll uh, uh, you will have to say yeah in a moment uh, after okay. we've after we've heard this Latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. Sonic, the uh, the top story tonight it is oh today because it's, it's like just afternoon for me. I just can't I can't do this time change thing. Um, Formula One. Hooray! Mon- I was waiting for the queue there. No, no, that's fine. That's you can do that. <laughs> and Formula One at Monza. Can you do hooray again? Well, that's you know, like the first the first foreign Grand Prix I ever went to, and I was just dropped into the paddock, confused, can, back in 1996. Can we do Formula One at Monza every week, please? Well, this year, yes. We have had some snore fests um, in previous years, but this year was cracking. Um, every race I saw from Monza was, was very good, and we had an absolutely fantastic Grand Prix, and, and I refute anybody even the greatest naysayers of the internet to deny that was not only a great a great race but it had everything and a surprise result right can i just throw a slight hand grenade in please get rid of drs drs is not required what we've learned if i've learned anything in the last couple last couple of weeks is drs is not required at spa and monza if if we're going to keep drs I, i you know what Sit down, collective, because this is going to really, this is going to really <coughs> surprise and and in in some respect, perhaps annoy some of you. I understand why DRS is important at some tracks. However, Spa and Monza are not two of them. Get rid of them at that point, and actually, we won't have any worse race. We had a great race at Monza, and DRS didn't have any any bearing on it whatsoever. I'm, I, whilst I agree with you at Spa, um, mm. because of the way the, the track runs and the uphill nature and, and you've got a very long run and it's not that particularly required, um, I think you'll find in Monza it is still needed for that extra two-tenths of a second to get mm. the car 
into the braking zone mm. for corner one. It's just because of the it's just because of the huge wash from these cars. Right. Okay. Um, but what I'm going to say is on a safety grounds at Monza. And Marcus Ericsson will be the person to go, Heindorf, you're absolutely right here. You can't have DRS at Monza because the speeds are so high. And what we saw with that on the Sauber was mm-hmm. the DRS opened and then overextended. And not only did it not just stall the wing, it was giving him lift at the back, which is why he totaled the car into the left-hand side. And frankly... If you're if you are Formula One and you are lauding Halo, then you've got to say, hmm, we've got to be looking here at at DRS. It's supposed to if it goes wrong, it's supposed to close as the default. It's not going to close a default if you're doing 210 miles an hour. Well, there were obviously one thing. The point is that obviously at uh, Monza, the fastest track in the year, there are a lot of bespoke aerodynamic parts, <laughs> as much as there are in Monaco, where they are super downforce, super draggy. You know, everyone puts their skinniest wings on and re-engineers everything. And one of the things they always have to re-engineer um, is the DRS, and it wasn't just Salvo had a problem with. It. I think um, Renault had a problem as well, and a couple of other teams said because they only use these wings once, once, a, once a season. They won't be the same as last year, so they, they'll be engineered in day one. And it just does seem that on the this one use only, they had a couple of problems. But as you point out, very extreme results if you get it wrong, um, which is surprising really, because they say all these wings are so skinny. Well, obviously, even that little bit of that, that little one-inch deflection is enough to, uh, to to stick the car to the ground. But um, yeah, the thing is, remember, is that, as I think you said last week, DRS is, is is being extended for the rest of the season. It was actually that was announced during the week, wasn't it? That they were going to have. Uh, uh, longer runs and fair enough now Dhabi you need something because it's a weird track because it looks like it should be perfect to overtake and no one can <laughs> um, but uh, and next year we're going to have a combination of um, l- less difficulty to follow and and more well if it works obviously and more DRS effects so yeah I mean it's you, you will start to see almost tactical slipstream as like you used to have on back in 1965 and 1971 um, where it wasn't the right thing to be the car leading the last Lab, you know, you had five of them coming around the parabolica and all just sprinting for the line. But um, uh, yeah, I think it, it, it's a you know, it, it's an answer to a problem that was created by an inability to solve the other problems more than anything else. Um, yes. And this particular issue with DRS was a result of people designing bespoke wings for this week, which obviously you can't test because guess what? There's no testing. No, yes, and that comes back to what you've said in the past many times. Let's let's get to the let's get to the race. Uh, by the way, we should say. Thank good. One thing we can say, thank goodness for the the, the strength of Formula One cars. Although, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something in that's gonna create a huge amount of Twitter. Is um, apparently the debate about Halo is dead, except the fact that Halo spun that car over and over and over again, which it wouldn't have done if it hadn't have had it. Ericsson I'm talking about. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, there's no perfect solution. The fact is, I mean, they, they they are relatively happy to have cars doing that because, as, as you as you know, it's not the it's not the the falling that hurts; it's the sudden stop at the end. Yeah. So if point. they're rolling, the longer they're rolling, they are dissipating energy the whole time. Um, 
and it looks really spectacular for television. So Halo doing job on many different excellent. levels. You got an excellent accident. No one was actually hurt. You know, Ericsson walked away with, in fact, not not not, not nary a scratch, but no scratch at all. Um, it was obviously a little bit of an issue for the uh, Sauber accountants, but beyond that, um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a win-win-win situation. Damon Hill saying everybody likes a good accident. I'm not sure that was a great comment. Probably not, but he is still quite old school. So <laughs> he's got grey hair, like like me now. In fairness, silver, silver, uh, silver, silver fox. silver fox. Okay, fine. Uh, let's move. Let's move on to the race and not uh, qualifying. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Grumpy, grumpy, grumpy Fettel. Not liking <laughs> the fact that um, he had to give him a minute toe to to Kimmy because that was the order they're going because that they're taking in turns. Um, yeah, I think we'll, we'll get to the end. Let's of have it. a chat about that afterwards, shall we? Well, yeah, exactly. And this is the interesting thing. And, and there, was a, there was a report you know, a few days ago, I think it was actually just before the start of the race, that you know, Mercedes were talking about you know, how they were going to run their team and would mm. Valtteri be asked to become a, an actually de facto number two, not just... Not a, till after, ha- not till after uh, Singapore, apparently. Well, you know, it seemed to be half about lap one, but um, uh, you know, and and Ferrari, obviously, who are the kings, or historically have been the, the kings of um, the number one, number two, you know, certainly um, did not favour in a way they could have done Sebastian in in qualifying because they could have put Kimi in front of him, which has a theoretical advantage, not a, necessarily an advantage. You have to get it right, and you have to, get, and it's a, it's a small. Um, I sort of a lift by getting the car just just far enough ahead to give a small tow, but not disrupt the car around the corner. So it really is, a, you have to be about two and a half seconds ahead so, because otherwise you, you, know, you lose more you gain. If you, if you notice in the race, was, you know, where the cars were following closely, they would lose Jesus a large so amount going to, to the very empty. But um, and so, they, so, so effectively, Raikkonen did put in the fastest that we've ever seen uh, in a competitive um, lap in F1, eclipsing one Pablo Montoya's 2004 lap. Yes, so, uh, so Liberty are very happy because the, you know, when you watch on CNN who don't, do anything other than uh, a bit of coverage or you know somewhere else around the world uh, we've been record breaking this it's weekend. the fastest lap in the world well obviously it's not it's just the fastest lap um, average for everyone and, you know, it is actually you know in fairness it won't get beaten next year because the cars are going to be a bit slower again next year so that that is likely to stand again for some time no I quite you know what I don't in fairness I don't have a problem with that and you know everybody you know I, as this show will uh, will will uh, play out, you know, I spent a lot of time at Brands Hatch at the weekend, talking to our collective, and you know, as I've said many times before, and as I said at the weekend, I don't dislike Formula One. I have a problem sometimes with the way Formula One is covered, and I actually don't have a problem whatsoever about the uh, the genuine, you know. Formula One's changed this year. That was extraordinary. Those those qualifying laps were extraordinary. It wasn't optimum conditions because it had rained, and you know I have I have no problem with that. And and you know even the race it's, honestly the race itself I was absolutely glued to it. I couldn't watch it live because I was at Brands Hatch, as you'll hear later on the program. Uh, but I was glued to that and watched it all the way through without pausing. No spoilers. No spoilers. Well I, done. No, no. Quite hard. I, no, no, it, no, 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 not, not, not that difficult actually. Just don't look at your phone. Um, mm. You know, I, I, and got home, watched it, and 
I actually really enjoyed it. Um, there's a couple of things, a couple of points I, I want to bring up before we, we talk about uh, some of the, um, shall we say, the um, musical chairs. But uh, let's talk about the race first of all. Um, mm-hmm. I've never been a Hamilton apologist. Neither have I been a Vettel apologist. Absolutely Vettel's fault. I thought he was completely... I thought he was really lucky not to get uh, a, a, a penalty for running into Vettel. I think that the... Hamilton. Sorry? Uh, sorry, uh, Hamilton. Know. Yes, thank you. Um, I think that Verstappen... Um, oh, how many times on this show have we said Verstappen, when he attacks, is good. When he defends, is bad. I think he's lucky to only get five seconds of a penalty. And then mm-hmm. he doesn't play the team game by letting Bottas through and holding on to his position. Because, and I quote from the radio, yeah, I know, but I don't care. I mean, that's that's just nonsense. Although, I have to say, and we've criticised Mercedes in the past. I, I'm Write this down because I'm stacking these all up, Nick. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm... Yep, yeah, yeah, I know. It's a lot for Wednesday evening. Yes, yes, absolutely <laughs> right. Um However, I thought Mercedes left Bottas ahead of Raikkonen for too long because they were given Raikkonen the opportunity of having DRS for too long. Basically, as soon as Hamilton got there, they should have pulled Bottas back in and they probably left him out two, maybe three laps too long. All right, I'm going to throw that to you now. First of all, Hamilton and Vettel. Hamilton Vettel. Oh, and it was, it was completely Vettel's fault. But I say fault. It was completely the accident. The reason that Vettel was facing the wrong way, and the reason they hit each other was because of a of a again an issue with Vettel's car in the first lap, in which he understeers. He understood yeah, into Bottas. That's a very you know, good point. He, it's it's a situation where he when he asks for more lock on lap one when the car's not up to you know temperatures, he doesn't get it. And I think that it's it, it's very easy for us armchair experts to criticise people <laughs> uh, going up between 180 what? miles an hour down to 100 but down to 80 miles an hour in Monza with the adrenaline running at the start of a Grand Prix. Yeah. And say you've made an awful mistake. You don't deserve to be world champion. Um, when in fact, what he actually did was he made a very small mistake, and both times he's paid for it. You know, last Nick, week, that's it, twice it, in two weeks that you have changed my not changed my mind, but you have altered my thinking on that. And that is a very fair point that yeah. that the Vettel effectively asked for something from the car that the car couldn't deliver. Yeah, and I think, and I think you know, it, it, everyone looks for a blame game. And, and unfortunately, the first thing that Sebastian gets asked when he gets into the pen is whose fault is it? And he's sat there and he's still, you know, obviously Fuming. not happy. He's not won the race. We've not even gotten to the thing. And he's going to say, well, he didn't give me enough room. And though he, I mean, in fairness, Sebastian, the interview I saw on Sunday, he did say, well, you've got all the angles. Um, meaning he was almost doing the kind of thing, you know, but, you know so he's covering himself. But from his from his position, sitting down, yeah, he felt he was he squeezed. He wasn't. I mean, uh, it was an absolutely brilliant piece of overtaking opportunism. It was caused by, again, Ferrari, you know, perhaps not optimising what could have happened at the start of the race between the two cars. But you know, that's the start of the race. And I think it's a very difficult ask to, to you know, even they wanted it to tell Kimi not to win um, the race at uh, Monza. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it was it was it was, it was unfortunate for for Sebastian. And then it was lucky because in in a way it wasn't as bad as it could have been because because of Hartley's 
wiped, been totally been wiped out by Van Dorn. He got why a free. Was the, why was that not just a virtual safety car? By the way, I, I actually shouted I out know. loud I, at no, that. That's, really, that's, a, that's a really, really good question because. I was told off by the responsible adult who's doing RSL I, accounts at the moment I have and likes an issue. things quiet. I do have an issue with what's VSC, what's safety car, what's not, what's nothing. For example, why when Ricardo parked at the side of the track yeah. um, oh, 15 laps later, was that nothing? Because that's not – I mean, I'm not saying – I'm not saying I want to see a thing because it would give a certain car an advantage. I'm just saying, but it's been a virtual safety car everywhere else. So why is it not a virtual safety car there? It's, la- it's like- lack of consistency, Nick. I actually shouted. Now, bear in mind that, you know, I've come back from Brands and the Porsche Festival. I'm sitting there watching. I actually shouted, safety car? Are you joking? And the responsible adult who was deep in third quarter, um, uh, doing the third quarter yeah. accounts, said, oh. hey. And I went, oh, sorry, yes to which I then closed the door to where I was watching. I actually shouted the recorded programme, which is even worse. I know, I know. I, I, know, I, was, I, I was moaning live. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was live as far as I was concerned because I knew nothing of what was going on. All right, so that's that. Um, so then, yeah, then you kind of, they, they trundled along. The interesting, the interesting thing was that the Mercedes was able to, but wasn't having the issue it normally has. I'm not sure whether it was just down to the layout of the circuit, which obviously is not. Um, it could follow it could follow. It, it, yes. it sat there. Um, it wasn't. Ha- but more importantly, Johnny, it wasn't having to drop back two seconds to call the car either. Mm. Um, so he Good was point. sitting in the dirty air for, um, you know, the very dirty air. He was normally within, trying to stay within um, DRS range. So, so the two of them. But he couldn't make. I off. mean, it, what, what I like in some ways, and I'm, I'm arguing against two weeks in a row, really? I'm arguing oh, against yeah. myself. <laughs> um, but he had. Uh, Hamilton had DRS, but. Actually, took them quite a long while to get into a position. Yeah, the issue is, of course, the, the parabolica is the one corner where you actually need, you know, yeah. narrow grip. And so you are going to, even if you can't get that, that nice slipstream coming into the parabolica, you're, you're point four behind. You're going to lose point three, point four. So you have to get a really good run in to get, you know, to get anything up. And, and I was, I wasn't totally convinced at any point that that, that Lewis was actually that bothered about being behind at that point. No, true. he was sitting there quite happy anyway because if it stopped, you know, if they stopped it now, I've still, you know, rather than losing point. points like to today, I've one point. So, and then, you know, then the whole thing went very aggressive from Mercedes, which was interesting. But also, I mean... We, did, they, we, we, did they leave Bottas out too long? Well, I think the whole, the whole area around it, but what basically happened was, I think it, there was a call made by... Um, both both teams came out, and, and the, the coverage I saw tried to make out it was a Machiavelli employee by Mercedes to make um, Ferrari drive around, what, drive around it. But I think it was, as in fairness to the... The Sky commentator said it was a it was a call of do what he doesn't. Yeah, for Hamilton. So we have but to be ready. We doesn't. have to be ready. So you, if he comes in, you don't, and vice versa. Mm. So they then went out and thought, right, let's 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 do. I hate the phrase. Let's do hammer time. Uh, and the first lap they gained a bit, and they thought, oh, this is quite good. Mm. And the second lap it was a bit flat, and they're going, oh, I'm not too sure either way. And the third lap they actually lost a tiny bit, and they were then going just one more lap, just one more lap. And then that was when Ricardo parked by the side of the road. Yeah. And at that point, you're going, well, hey, if I get a virtual safety car or a safety car, we are quids in. So at that point, then they were Stay kind of out. 
re- re- carry on for three or four laps. Yeah. And they carry on a bit more. And, that, and at that point, I think what they started looking at was the condition of Vettel's tyres. And they went, well, hang on, this looks, it looks like the Ferrari is having a bit of an issue with its rear tyres. Now, yeah, there's an element of crystal ball in there. But they, yeah, when you look at it, it's, it's, it's at one time, you know, that, that time when, you know, and I've berated this before, so I'm going to argue against myself as well. You know, <laughs> we get... <laughs> I keep getting told there's a, you know, there's a Brackley data center where there's 37 people looking at screens, you know, um, away from the track, even more than that, probably. And finally, obviously, that's actually worked. Rather than causing confusion, it's actually managed to cause a clever idea. They turn around and they go, well, it looks like Fettel isn't, isn't doing his tires any good. Correct. You know, and therefore, well, if we stay out as long as possible and now Kimmy's in, then there's a good chance that Kimmy's tires will actually go off towards the end of the race. So and Bottas becomes actually useful to us. And at that point, the thing, I think the other thing was, the Mercedes was, was being very light in its loafers. In fact, everyone was being light. The, the super softs were much... It's pretty weird, isn't it, how, some, how different tracks, the same tyres, which what's good and what's bad. That soft's been great all season, turned out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the super softs are a good tyre, so they go, well, we'll carry on going round. And they held Hamilton out here as long as possible. Um, so they, they kept... Go. So then they pull him in, and then at this point they go, "Well, we've got him behind." But but but, but there's there's Bottas. So they, they then just stuck Bottas out, and they, I think when Hamilton came out, it was five point three seconds or four point nine seconds behind Raikkonen, who obviously been trying to establish a lead, um, knowing he re- reversing that not to be undercut as such. And so he comes out, and then what they actually managed to do by using Bottas for four or five laps is actually negate that four and a half second. Um, advantage that, that uh, Raikkonen held because even though Raikkonen was gaining in sector one because he got DRS, he was losing around the rest of the track ah, by about right, a second. Okay. So yeah, it, it seems. See, you've looked at that now. I was just, you know, I was just watching. I was just watching the race. But actually, it's it's a clever move. Now they the sacrifice for that was they knew they were going to end up a reasonable way behind Verstappen. But again, they had confidence in the fact they could they they could, were confident they could get back on Verstappen's tail again, which is getting past him had been an issue before, and who knows what would happen. So I think they thought with, with Bottas, well, we'll do that. And anyway, if we can find a way of tactically getting a one and a four, that's a pretty good result, better than a two and a three um, for the World Championship. So that went, it, yeah, it kind of all went to plan. And it, and it was a, you know, a, a brilliantly aggressive and, and, and flexible strategy using both cars to... Uh, benefit, yeah, the sort of thing you'd expect to see Rubens Barrichello you know, ahead of, uh, I don't know, 1.1 oh, toy back behind. That's yeah, but, a quality yeah. call, Mr. Dearman. But, you know, Ferrari aren't doing that for some reason, um, which is which is weird. They're going to have to do it from now on, because otherwise they've got no chance. But v- Vettel, I mean, Vettel, obviously, he made up a lot of places. We saw a lot of passing. He, he, he did, you know, basically, he did what we... Uh, I was actually watching with James, my son. He doesn't watch many races. So he was, um, he was, when Vettel got the back, he said, oh, well, well, well do, you think he can get, do you think he can get in the top 10? I said, oh, he'll, he'll get to fifth. He'll get to fifth, and that's where he'll be. And yes. he said, unless, he, unless he's incredibly light in his loafers, which he wasn't, he'll be fifth. And he would have been fifth if it hadn't been for the incident between Verstappen and uh, Bottas, which, which obviously, because it, Verstappen was a bit of a twit, he ended up getting fourth because he was able to, to run up close enough behind, still wouldn't be able to take either of them, to negate the five-second penalty, so he got a fourth. So, right, let's you know, talk about did... that Verstappen thing. Let's talk about the Verstappen thing. Uh, first of all, Verstappen in the wrong, defended too hard. He just made a mistake. I th- I, again, I, I did. I think he just. If you look at it, he. Um, I think rather than his his previous guilty uh, previous um, uh, crimes of massive weaving in the braking zone, that was a misjudgment to me. 
And I think that's why he was upset about it because he think I don't think he then wanted to blame Bottas who had nowhere to go. But he misjudged it. He he just came over six inches too far. Um, you know, because he was he he thought that he wasn't that Bottas wasn't going to go around the outside. He's probably right. So he decided I'm going to make the angle of the corner better. He just moved. It wasn't. They were thinking, oh, it's the angle. It wasn't aggressive. Where he stopped wasn't that far out. So I think you know it was absolutely the right decision by the stewards because yeah. he had he had mucked up the thing. It was, it, Five it, seconds it, was the right call, was yeah. it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think it had the, you know, the, the, any sort of. I didn't see malice in it. I thought it was clumsy, and Ooh. had, and the result of that was that somebody was disadvantaged who should have got past him, or may well have got past him. So a five-second penalty to me was perfectly fair. Right, and, let's uh, let's move on that from was, that, so, though, Nick. Sorry, sorry John, that was also handed down incredibly quickly. That was an incredibly quick decision by the stewards. It wasn't really vexing them much either. No, and and I I like quick decisions from stewards. You know that. <laughs> However. Then he says, uh, you know, basically he's fighting Bottas when he should have really let him go. And he says on the radio, I know this is hurting me as far as Vettel's concerned, but I don't care. Now, does that not show the slight naivety, youth, whatever, of Verstappen? I think that the the thing you have to realise is that Red Bull are going to come third in the World Championship. Doesn't matter. Two points either way. They'll be third. They'll be hundreds, but hundred behind Mercedes and hundreds ahead of the next team, mm. or, or Ferrari. There's nothing much at stake. In fact, by actually by not scoring those two points, you save them some money on their entry fee next year because you pay per point in the constructors' championship. <laughs> so actually, he saved them some money. He's lost a couple. Yeah, of but points. he's lost them some money because they get paid by points as well yeah, no, it doesn't work that well it doesn't work in that room. it's costs you more than you lose but you know it's it, it's petulant and I, I i get the impression that realistically they, they are having to pander a little bit to some of his more um uh youthful immature elements right. um because they aren't giving him what he actually needs which is a winning car it's distinctly unlikely next year to be a winning car with the honda power however many nice things they say about it now and i can't wait for that for that relationship to break down on race three um <laughs> You know, so they got to get, he's their man. When they finally get everything together and, and things are running properly, he's the guy who they believe will spearhead a world championship bid. And on the strength of the second half of the season, you know, this, this second half of so far, you know, he's doing a reasonably good job. And he's maximized after a poor, poor, poor start. He's got that out of his system, maximizing what he's doing. And he's, and he's, the, he's comfortably the better of the two drivers. I mean, admittedly, Ricardo's not had much chance to show anything. He's broken down in about every single race since he, last, he won in Monaco. But, um, and he yeah, had the new C-spec engine this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, I, yeah, but that was a clutch problem. It wasn't, it wasn't engine. So, you know, the one thing I would say, and I, and I do feel this, and I do feel this with Red Bulls. I, I'm not, I wouldn't be 100% certain of their installations, to be honest. I'm not sure how well they install the engine, whether they're not giving it enough cooling. I know you're not with they, me now, but if think. you could look at my face now, do you think there would be any kind no. of surprised look on my face that you've just said that? <laughs> But it'd be interesting what happens with Honda because they, yeah, you know, it's a full works team. They're going to have to try and pretend to get on for a while, and <laughs> they, you know, they, they, they're going to have to be a little bit more flexible. If this thing needs it needs some things opened up. Adrian's going to have to go. We'll open those two holes up because, you know, otherwise it's going to it's going to just grenade itself. So, you know, this is the the thing you have to say. One of the, the the really admirable thing about Mercedes and Ferrari is their reliability. Mm. You know, I I think we've lost Raikkonen from one race. We had that double failure in Austria for for Mercedes. 
But they're putting out a thousand horsepower from a 1.6 liter engine, and including all its recovery and everything else. And they're doing it. Each engine is lasting eight races, which is extraordinary uh, now. We're, get, we're getting on to endurance. Look, I'm an endurance fan. We're getting on to endurance racing kind of reliability. Far off a Le Mans, a Le Mans run. So yes. if you think about you've got 14 hours of racing. You've got um, another eight hours of qualifying, let's pretend, or 16 hours of racing. So you effectively that engine would do Le Mans. It, it might yeah, just no, be I, I'm impressed. Tired. Um, but they, I know, think it's and, wrong. And I think it's wrong because I don't need to see Formula One being an endurance uh, spec racing. No, I want to see engines blowing up. No, no, <laughs> you know, I, I, much, I like a big blow up rather than a big accident. You know, I, I, want to see, I want to see the piston coming out the side of the engine and then them blaming an alternator failure because yeah, the alternator was blown, off, was blown off by the piston. Um, <laughs> that, that happened to me once. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsport. We're nearly, uh, already nearly half an hour into this. Nick Damon is joining me, John Heineff. Nick is back in the UK. I'm at uh, WeatherTech Raceway at Laguna Seca because we're here for the IMSA uh, event this weekend. Uh, just a couple of races left of the season. Um, musical chairs. In fo- do you want to well, do musical have, chairs? I've, or I've do you want one to... more thing to say first. One more thing to say first. All right, go on. And that is, whilst we might, may have said he was a bit iffy at the beginning of the season, Hamilton has been absolutely fantastic for the last seven or eight races. No, I don't disagree I with think, that I, at all. You know, and I, and it I, doesn't make good not, radio, but I agree with it's you. It's not denigrating Fettel, who I also think is doing particularly well, but he had, apart from, obviously apart from Germany. Um, no, yeah, but, but not... you know what, Nick? Nick, honestly, I, I'm not going to go the it's the best F1 season ever TM. I've actually enjoyed this season of F1 more than many people might have expected me to because of the fact that, you know, Vettel made a mistake at, at Hockenheim that, that cost him the race. Um, there there are consequences for things going wrong this year, which I actually don't dislike. And it's what you were saying about engines blowing up. I actually quite like the fact that we are seeing a Formula One season this year Honestly, I would like to see uh, another couple of teams a little bit closer to Ferrari and F1. I still think it's Vettel's championship. I still think Mercedes have got a little bit of an advantage and, and, and fair play to them because they've They've built that with the engine. It's still an engine. It's still an internal combustion engine formula in Formula One. And and, and the reason I say that, Nick, is because the best aerodynamicist in Formula One is Red Bull. And they're not going to be anywhere in the championship this year because Adrian Newey hasn't been able to make the difference as he did in the year when they won all the championships. In the well, years yeah, when they won all the championships. You know, I, I sit around and I, and I wonder... You know, we were told for years that the McLaren was a great chassis with a rubbish engine. You know, it's you know, there's elements. You get you get yourself a bigger engine. It changes the uh, you know, the 50 horsepower. It doesn't just make you go 50 horsepower faster. It affects everything else as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, I and mean, in fairness, McLaren, the, McLaren, it, Williams are unfortunately, as we've documented on this program before, are in problems. And, and yeah. they are not in problems think, that can be easily solved. No, I think going with Red Bull again, I think I, I personally agree. I, I would like to have seen it be a three-team battle, and I don't have an issue if we, if we have three, three. If we end up with three A teams and you know, 
six, seven, nine supporting teams, as long as those three A teams are all very, 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 very close. Um, you don't, you, know, you need two cars to make a race. At the moment, we've got four. It'd be really nice if we had six. Mm. Um, and I think you know, there's also this, 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 this clear delineation into the midfield actually makes the midfield a real scrap as well. That's very so, true. You know, so it, it, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, no, it's, not, it's, it's certainly the Ferrari getting the engine right and taking the situation where we turn up and we don't say, if they don't make a mistake, Mercedes are going to win. And now we are saying, if they don't make a mistake, Ferrari are going to win. And unfortunately, of the most recent races, they've managed to make a minor mistake. And as you so rightly say, John, it's the tiniest of error that's costing you now. But I it's like not, that. Yes, but it's perfect. I mean, you know, Raikkonen didn't win because they didn't bring enough soft tyres, which they chose God knows how many months ago because they didn't think they'd need them. So they ran them and the soft tyre, which has been solid as a rock all season, just didn't agree with the Ferrari at Monza over those temperatures with that ambient, with that, you know, with that humidity. But Nick, th- yeah. this is what you were talking about three, four, five seasons ago saying, oh, I really hope these tyre choices are going to make a difference. They haven't up until now. And now, now listen, have we criticised the tyre the situation in Formula 1? Yes, we have. Pirelli? Thank you, because I've no idea how you're doing this, but you you are inserting a degree of uncertainty. I'm sure they really don't want to do that, but they are they are adding a variable here that sometimes even the teams aren't expecting. And I, and again, I don't have a problem with that, Nick. No, it's what it should be. I mean, I think you know. I think obviously, currently, if you're a Ferrari fan, you'll be hurting about it. But it's worked. It's worked both ways. Last time, in, I mean, I think you know, obviously the tyre situation in Spa last week was was yeah. completely reversed. It Correct. Was, was and it's not over. It's not over because we've got Singapore, no, I, I, where I'm, traditionally well, Mercedes Singapore are. Is, pants. I mean, I'm absolutely certain. I'm absolutely certain. Um, Barring another situation like last year, there will be a swing back towards Ferrari there. Now, the, what Ferrari fans have to hope is that um, Red Bull are good enough to get in between Ferrari and Mercedes. Yeah, copy that. Um, you know, I think what's happened since, since you know, don't forget the most recent slow track, which was Hungary. Mercedes won. Admittedly, it was damp, but they had the mm. race pace. Because I think I think Red Bull have been left have been left behind. And my 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 gut feeling is that Red Bull have already switched attention towards fitting the new regulations and the new engine into the new car. Oh, I don't say call. anything, but there's no point. They're third, whatever happens, and they're looking for scraps. They've got one more race they can win, which is this week, which is this sorry two weeks time, and. You know, even that's unlikely with the super amazing advances that um, the two other teams have made. So they sit around going, "We'll moan a bit about people, and we'll have another, we'll have another row with, with Renault to keep some PR coming towards us." Um, but effectively, now they decide, right? We've obviously got we've got a new engine to get into the car. We've got new aerodynamic rules. Let's see the best we can do. And, and, and in fact, they would be they would be foolish not to be doing a hundred percent the new car now because they yeah. are third. No. They're third. It's a fair point, um, well made. Haas, on the other hand, they need to work on this year's car. Um, as the one they've been running so far, it's, well, <laughs> it's illegal. And, of course, everyone knew it was illegal. And that's why after the race on Sunday, Renault protested um, Romain Grosjean's sixth place and got the car thrown out. Which not only benefits Renault in the Constructors' Championship, kills surprise, but in a marvellous piece of serendipity, meant that Sergei Srotkin finished 10th and scored a point. Which is terribly important. Why, I hear you ask. Well, the answer is, it's the first time ever that every driver in F1 has scored points, obviously until um, Robert Kubica comes in in two races' time. Right, musical chairs. This is all two weeks in a row on Midweek Motorsport here on the RSL Network. We have said, well, that's not very F1, is it? (laughs) And 
and the reason I say that is because last week you convinced me that Liberty and the way they went with uh, force points point India point two three six seven a recurring India yeah pi pi force India as we're now going to call them India, yeah. that's fantastic well done that's what they're going to be called now um, and you convinced me rightly I believe that. That whole situation was the right way to go, and 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 I'm absolutely convinced of that. Now we've got a situation where not one, not two, but three drivers are in the mix, and people are sensibly talking about how that might happen, and that it might happen before the end of the season. Claire Williams, um, Omar Shofna, uh, Williams, and um, uh, where's Omar Shofna? Oh, the racing point Force India. Yes, thank you, Force India. Um, talking about how they're going to shuffle their drivers, and and that uh, is that's not very Formula One. That would never have happened a few years ago. The Lance Stroll is obviously going at some point to to Racing Point Force India. That's because his dad runs a team. That's kind of a bit of a given. Someone has to make way, and it's almost certain to be Esteban Ocon. However, Esteban Ocon is very, very good and Mercedes has lots of money behind him. He's also six foot one, which means unless you knew you were going to have Esteban Ocon in your car when you designed now, it, now, um, you've got right more now. of an issue. Yeah. Hmm. So there's a room, there, there are various rumours and obviously there's a possibility of going to Williams and that's really just seat time. You're not going to be challenging anybody in that thing. And there's also a statement, of course, that if, um, which was suddenly been released to the media, so I can assume it can only have come from the uh, the management of the man himself, is that Robert Kubica has an absolute gar- cast-iron guarantee that if a, a reserve driver is needed, therefore if another driver drops out, it will be him. Yeah, but not, not like... at Singapore because he can't turn the wheel enough. Well, not even that. It's because, they, they, it's cause, it's cause Lance Stroll doesn't want to go to Singapore. doesn't want to start in Singapore either because it's a difficult track and, and Force India... Point four, point three, recurring, um, have got a, a, a apparently have got a major update coming. So that it's almost like they're happy to live with status quo there, and then think about doing it the following. Uh, so, race. are we actually going to see driver changes before the end of the season? It seems like we are. No, I, I think it's absolutely nailed on as nailed on as anything can be in F one. That Lance Stroll will end up at Force India before the end of the season. More likely, possibly in Russia, most likely in Russia actually. Um, that obviously triggers it could be just a simple thing in that Ocon drops out and um, uh, Kubica comes into Williams it could be as simple as that so the big question really now is what happens to Mercedes Junior Esteban Ocon next season because a lot of people uh, thought he'd be going to McLaren um, to replace Stoffel Van Dorn but as we know following Monday's announcement that's going to be Landau Norris who is probably not going to uh, win Formula 2 in fact probably going to finish second um, after losing more ground to other Mercedes Junior, George Russell at the weekend. Can I just you know? say something that I noticed at the weekend? Because mm. given what I was doing at the weekend, I, I got to watch a lot of the support races and not necessarily a lot of Formula 1. I, I watched all the Formula 1 practices on catch-up and the race on catch-up, but I watched quite a lot of the races live. His head moves around a lot. I, I still he think he needs not... to yeah, to gain some fitness. Well, I think I think he needs to gain some bulk, to be honest, John. Unlike right. Esteban Ocon's problem, where Esteban Ocon is a, is a big lad, um, Lando's a little boy. No, well, we found at the weekend that Daniel Ricciardo's got he's wide small, hips. He's a small young man. He's not a little boy. I'm going to take that back. He's, a, he's an 18 years old. He's not a big 18-year-old guy. Right. You know, 
some guys continue to he's grow a scrum half not, not a prop is that what you see exactly mm. and and you know and perhaps he does and i think you know you know this is all very well excited people were through but it's 18 no one no one in 10 years ago would have thought about putting an 18 year old in they'd have gone go and do another year in super do a year in f2 do a year in super formula and then come to f1 or do more likely actually what they would have done do a year as our test driver actually driving mm. every other tuesday you know, again, oh, hang on, that's not available. I think, you know, Mercedes are now finding, oh, there's nowhere to put, there's nowhere to put rock on. Well, you could have had a test drive, but oh, hang on, we've all banned testing. And what happens then? Our wings don't close properly. Oh, hang on, uh, I might be improving right again. Um, you know, but, you know, they are doing 21 races now, so do they have the ability to, um, you know, do testing? And possibly that's where I'm being all old-fashioned and rose-tinted spectacly. Uh, St. Patrick's Day to the start of Advent. It is yeah. the, the, th- the season for next year. Let's talk about calendars. And, uh, and as they say, no things given for any other FIA championship. Really haven't bothered at all, have they? They've ridden rush over Formula E at the back end of the season. They've not bothered about WEC either. Well, well, uh, WEC and Australia clash, but that they're on different time zones um, on the 17th of March. So, well, actually, that's the same weekend because WEC will be on... The Friday night, so that will be yeah. a couple of days earlier. But okay, that's fine. Uh, we've got the big, the big clash is all the way down in the thirteenth of October. Japan, Suzuka, yeah. and Fuji. That can't happen. So WEC will move. And everything I've, everyone I've talked to at the WEC unofficially have said one of the reasons why the WEC calendar was provisionally provisional in a provisional way provisionally was because they were waiting for this calendar mm-hmm. so yeah so weck's going to move yeah and which, which means there's no clash then with weck and petit Le Mans, which actually works pretty well um looking through the others what else have we got there's a well there's nothing new well there's a swap there's a um, swap round germany back yeah germany's back for one year which we talked about last week um They've managed, they've managed to get rid of the triple header, thank heaven. So they've a couple they've of double headers, double, though. Four, I think, actually, mm. through the course of the season, which isn't quite as bad as a triple. Um, France, yeah, I mean, France and Austria are double headed uh, straight after Le Mans because that, that's in, in, important to us. Great Britain's on the 14th of July, which kind of sits on its own in the middle of the year. Sorry, say again? Last one ever, officially, isn't it? Do they renegotiate the deal? Good point. 28th of July, Germany and Hungary, they're back-to-back. Uh, 20th of July, 4th of August, 1st and 8th of September, Belgium and Italy. This is all in Europe, so that's kind of doable. Um, Singapore and Russia are back-to-back. Well, they're quite local. Oh, hang on, they're not. But they're really a bit flying. Yeah, that, that kind of back-to-back business. Switch, switch round of Mexico and USA. Mexico now first on the day yeah. before my birthday, twenty second, twenty seventh of October. Send me the cards for the twenty eighth, please. Uh, I, I'm, Someone I'm, said it's because Mexico are tired of being the second one in a row and wanted to go at being first. Well, the other thing I've heard is because of of when daylight savings times change in both of those times, Mexico City will have already changed uh, from uh, their summer time to their quote unquote daylight savings time by the 27th of October, and the USA will only change the next weekend. So I, I quite like that. I, that's the way it's going to be. But we go then to Brazil and Yas Marina on the 1st of December. Is it? 
Yes. We, we crept in December. Sorry, I hadn't, I hadn't noticed No, we that really yet. do have to get the advent calendar out. So, right. number one is going to be a little, a little chocolate Formula One car. Yes, they've stretched season by two weeks, haven't they, effectively? Yeah. Um, which is good, because they've got too many races, and they want to pop in two more. And they'll, so this, so this, yeah, Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, but into 20, there's several races which aren't guaranteed, and they're supposed to get some new ones in Vietnam and Miami and other places. So, I mean, I think yeah, we're doing 21 again here. I think it's too many. I really do. And, you know, it's be, you know but that's the way it's going. We're now becoming a, you know, a, a, a series of, of races. I think it's... It's quite nice. I mean, it's nice for me. I mean, I enjoy it because I get to watch lots of Grand Prix racing on a Sunday. <laughs> I, you know, I remember, I remember doing the season, you know, when I was, you know, it was only 17 when I was doing it. And only five flyaways. It might have yeah. been six in the final year. And, and, right. that, and it, the, if you're really honest, the European ones, and I know a lot of people are going to say that's not, the European ones don't take much out of you, to be honest. The European ones, really, you know, compared to doing, you know, a proper endurance race. You know, it's pretty easy, but, um, you know, it's the flyaways to take it out of you, and they've got so many flyaways, the mechanics and everyone else. Couple of couple of changes, which which are quite interesting. Well, a couple of headlines on that. Uh, mm-hmm. Spa, part of the championship now, and bear in mind, Spa was out of the championship not so long ago. So, Belgian Grand Prix, well, actually, it says Belgian Grand Prix will be part of the calendar until 2021. I can only assume that's Spa. Uh, Suzuka extended for another 10 years. The other thing that's quite interesting is that the OEMs, the uh, original equipment manufacturers and engine manufacturers and uh, are allowed now to sponsor Grand Prix. So yep. that's, that's a bit of a difference there that, that has been brought in by, by Liberty. And, and again, and sit down again, collective, I'm not sure I have a problem with that either. No, I mean, the, the idea was that they, I think they thought there'd be elements of seeing a favouritism if you actually had, if you were giving the sponsor of an event to an entrant, you think, oh, there might be some favouritism we'd be gained by that mm-hmm. entrant. Also, obviously, it's it's the press releases, it's not, you know, you know how much Renault don't want to write down the Honda Grand Prix of, of Suzuka because they have to write the word Honda on their press release, it's that sort of thing. So I'm sure they get round it in some way. But I mean, I, I, don't, I mean, yeah. Well, in the same way that we were talking about the other week about yeah. MotoGP and everybody talks about Spielberg and not the Red Bull ring. I know. But let's be really honest about this. Um, ever since cigarette money went, F1 needs money from wherever we can get it. So if it's going to get more money from a sponsorship from Mercedes than it is from Heineken, then that's fine. I haven't got any issue with it whatsoever. Nick Damon has been joining us here. I'm in the WeatherTech Raceway Laguna. I've got to be so careful how I say that this weekend. Jill That's Campbell. Done. No, <laughs> see, see, you've just cost me $10 there. Jill Campbell is going to charge me $10 every time I say the wrong sponsor's uh, name for this. Nick, thanks very much for joining us. And uh, I'll, I'll speak to you. With well, actually, you're not going to be around for the next couple of weeks, are you? I am on a European tour of my own. Um, uh, you will see if you if you're if you're visiting Eastern European capitals in the next couple of weeks, you may well see me. Okay, mate. Thanks for being with us tonight. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks, John. See you, mate. Bye. Said it was going to be a slightly different program tonight, and it is because at the weekend before I jumped on the big silver cinema in the sky to come across here to WeatherTech Race where Laguna Seca I got it right. Got it right. I guarantee I'll get it wrong over the weekend. Uh, for our IMSA radio coverage over on RS2. Uh, Sunday, jumped in the car, drove down to Brands Hatch, a similar circuit actually, 
to here at Laguna Seca for the Porsche Festival, celebrating 70 years of Porsche. And actually, quite appropriate as we're going to be here for Rennsport, which will be the final outing before it goes to the museum for the 919 LMP1 Hybrid Evo. The tribute to her, it's called by Porsche. And uh, delighted that our partners, Mobile One, from Mobile One Radio Le Mans, of course, allowed us to get up close and personal to that phenomenal machine. And uh, the, the first person I spoke to about it, appropriately enough, was the race engineer, Olivier Champinois, who, first of all, told me about the philosophy and the idea behind the 919 Evo as opposed to the car that I saw racing, and many of us saw racing, in the WEC and at Le Mans. We know the story of the 919 uh, hybrid, so with quite some successes, uh, three wins at Le Mans, three world championships. And the idea of, uh, of this uh, Tributo um, was to build a car to its maximum, let's say, so without any restriction of the limitation of the regulations, um, before we park it at the museum. So that was a bit the idea behind that. And the idea was to try and reuse the maximum of our knowledge, um, free all um, areas up from the regulations, technically, and try and uh, yeah, see what, what it can do. Well, I've been pretty close to the car on which this is based, and I noticed straight away different front-end treatment, no headlights for a start, different aero, you've got DRS on the back. So... This is effectively you're saying this is what we could have done w- without the rule book. That's uh, pretty much it, indeed. Um, well, we still wanted the car to be an LMP1 based car for sure, and most of the powertrain and well, all the chassis is, is the same. We had some, or we took a bit of freedom, let's say, with the aero uh, regulations. So you can see the front is uh, is brand new or brand new. It was specifically developed for the Evo and also the rear. Um, is that side skirts on the side as well? Though? Yes, indeed. There are some side skirts, not rubbing skirt, but still some uh, some side skirts. The diffuser is, uh, is much larger at the, at the back. The rear wing you cannot miss. It's uh, <laughs> it's clearly thrice bigger as an LMP1, and the front is also quite quite specific. We also removed some weight with the headlights, but basically, let's say 70% of the little development we did with the budget limitation was on the aero then there was a bit of a play um, for example with the brake caliper control so we we can basically set our target brake caliper pressure as we want to try and control the the car in in yo and uh, there was also a bit of a development for this but the idea was to reuse most of the parts that we had on the shelves and that we had also uh, plan for the 2018 LMP1 um. Tell me about the drivetrain, still the, the, v, the V4 um, 2 litre engine but presumably without the restrictors, without the regulations on restrictors you can release a little bit more power there? Yeah, a bit more, yes. Uh, well, Come on, tell me more. Tell me how much. Tell me how much. Well, we were around like 500 in the LMP1 times, restricted by the fuel flow mainly. And just removing this fuel flow limit, we are above 700. About 700 from the engine? Yeah, just from the same engine. Um, the hardware is exactly the same. Um, we just remapped the, the engine on the dyno. 
adapted it a bit. Uh, with you make that sound so easy. We just remapped the engine. So you're using a little bit more fuel. The engine is creating half as much again power. I mean, what does that do to things like the internal fluids, the lubricants? What have you had to, uh, to do there in terms of, of keeping the engine together? Well, not too much in the end because, you know, this car was, um, well, aimed at endurance racing. So you have a lot of constraints aiming at the 24-hour race. But uh, when we targeted to do the Evo, the idea was to do, uh, let's say, one lap uh, performances. So in the end, we could even lower the engine oil level compared to what we were doing in the LMP one time. Uh, so we're using the same lubricants. No aiming at performance instead of endurance. We, we could actually lower the level. and uh, So still running on fully synthetic Mobile One? Exactly, yes. Same, same oil. All the hardware and the liquids are all the same. Same as now, before. Hang on a second, because I've talked to the guys from Mobile One and I know they can do some pretty trick stuff. So you haven't even had to have them provide a bespoke solution. This is the same type of Mobile One that you would have run at the 24 Hours of Le Mans? Yes, exactly. Same, same type. Exactly, we just, I think we removed like half a litre uh, <laughs> and that was it, to gain a bit of weight and uh, yeah. So. Tell me about the hybrid system as well, because clearly um, the regulations when the ACO and the FIAWAC brought in the hybrid, the idea was to, uh, to promote efficiency as well as speed. We broke all kinds of records in competition then, uh, you're going after outright track times in this car, have you tweaked up the hybrid as well? Um, on the hybrid side, it's quite little what we had to do in the end. Our um, hardware is exactly the same uh, as what we had before. We just used the highest gear ratio we had to be able to achieve the top speed we targeted. Uh, but for the rest, not much. Uh, there was this 300 kilowatt limit um, that was in the regulations, but that was not limiting us too much, so we just removed it. It's just a software parameter, basically, so the system could handle it in any case. So and same battery packs and same motors? Sorry? Same battery packs, same storage yes. media, and same electric motors? Yes, everything the same in terms of hardware. So we just selected the best components and we well, put it on the Evo, and that was it. Uh, and that was fairly simple. No, obviously, the way we use it was more in a qualifying style, so mm. trying to boost the maximum energy and depleting the battery through through the lap. But for the rest, there was nothing nothing uh, really different. Gearbox, other than changing perhaps the the ratios again, Mobile One uh, helping you out there with gearbox oils and greases. Well, same same for this, same hardware for the gearboxes, so front and rear, same hardware as before, and improve on time. Same as the engine, we target one lap performance. So in the end, we did some uh, dyno testing that showed that we could, well, for sure, uh, handle the extra load, so the extra torque for produced by the engine. So we didn't do any hardware change, all the same, using same oil and same, uh, same hardware in general. The car is phenomenal. Its pace is extraordinary. You are a race engineer, that's your title. What do you say to the people who would look at this car and say, yeah, but you're not doing it in competition? What's the point? What are we getting out of it? What are your partners getting out of it? And what are us as future Porsche owners getting out of this? And what are Porsche learning from, from this technological exercise of genius? Well, technically, there are some... Uh, areas that we explore and that for sure are going to be interesting also uh, for the future. I mean, some some 
let's say, development on the aerodynamics, some uh, uh, things that we did here with the uh, well, movable devices at the front and at the rear are for sure not lost, and I think that we have, um, let's say, well, recorded and we can reuse that in, in the future. Some things like the individual caliper pressure control, even if it's not uh, something that you expect to be used uh, soon in the regulations of any championship. It's something that helps us to, let's say, understand better how to use some of the, of the possibilities we have in other championships. And uh, basically, yeah, a lot of other things like yeah, pushing the performance of our, our car that was, co con well, that was designed for endurance to more performance, um, uh, let's say, on one lap. There was a lot of things that we, we learned and uh, also the approach in general, developing the car because we didn't have much testing, developing the car mainly on the simulator and uh, relying on, uh, on the CAD and things like that. The, all things that are for sure interesting. Yeah. How much of the original LMP1 team remains then? You run one, one car now rather than three at Le Mans. Have you been able to keep the majority of that team together? And you obviously you're a clever lad you know why I'm asking this because everybody's going to want me to ask when are we going to see Porsche back racing prototypes in the future uh, is the team still there and, and could you guys go back into uh, into world championship level motorsport well as you can see all the, the guys here they are from the team and I recognize a lot of faces from Le Mans them, there's for sure no, no new face most of them won Le Mans in the end and uh, yeah well still we were happy to, to keep many people some were redirected in other projects like in GT uh, and, and uh, other projects we might have uh, well at the moment we, are, we still have let's say the cap capabilities let's see what comes uh, I mean we have the Formula E which will for sure be the next project uh, for, for Porsche in terms of track operations and then let's see yeah. are you have you enjoyed this challenge it's a different challenge from going out and racing I mean I know endurance racing we think about keeping cars going for a long time but recently endurance racing has been wheel to wheel with your competitors even for the 24 hours of, of Le Mans have you enjoyed this and I presume it's been quite a different challenge I enjoyed it for sure um, we were also involved from the beginning of the development so it was nice let's say to see the, the start a few months ago of the idea and then the project and then how it developed and finally how we, we managed to beat the first the record in Spa and uh, in at the Nürburgring without having too much testing uh, in between. So that was for sure a, a very nice challenge technically. Some areas were really interesting and quite new uh, in terms of design and that was really nice. And then, well, basically achieving the, well, the record at the Notch Life was like the ice on, on the cake. Yeah. From that track, the longest racetrack, closed racetrack that anybody ever goes to, to the Brands Hatch Indy circuit. That's a little bit different, Olivier. I, I presume that when you brought Nick into this car later on today, um, setup's going to be a bit different. Have you had a chance to t even test here? No, not at all. Uh, well, for sure it's not the most appropriate track to show the capabilities of, of our car, but I think the car itself is already impressive enough and, uh, well, it's short, it's a short trip, but it's quite a challenging and nice one. Uh. Wish you all the best. Thank you for bringing it to the UK. And uh, I'm sure I'll talk to you again at Rennsport later on in the year at Monterey. You coming across for that? Yes, indeed. I will be there as well for the last, uh, last real event with this car. Can't wait. Olivia, thank you very much indeed. And congratulations to all the team for this wonderful technological achievement. Thank you. 
Midweek Motorsport. Half-time. And while we swap ends, here's what's coming up. Rather nice piece of symmetry there, isn't there? Because there was I at Brands at the weekend for the 919 tribute tour, thanks to Mobile One. And the last time that car will be seen in public is here at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. I won't be here for that as well with some special programming both from here then and also between the Rensport event and uh, the Petit Le Mans event as well. Uh, coming up on the second half of tonight's programme, we'll be looking at some of the other cars that were at the Porsche Festival. But next, Nick Tandy, who was the man driving the 919 Evo at Brands Hatch at the weekend. All here on Midweek Motorsport. Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com. The Porsche Festival is here at Brands Hatch. It's perfect weather. There's every single Porsche air cooled, water cooled, front, middle, rear engine, and of course the 919 hybrid, the LMP1H Evo. Nick Tandy's driving this today. No pressure, Nick. How many times have you been behind the wheel of this car? Zero. <laughs> so here's a car that has just done the outright fastest lap ever at the Nürburgring Nordschleife, one of the longest tracks in the world, and you're on the Brands Hatch Indy circuit with all of that power. 750 horsepower from the engine, you used to have about 500 when you were racing it, plus a tweaked hybrid system, active aero, DRS button, um, what could possibly go wrong? Well, you know me, John, it's just another racing car, isn't it? <laughs> but <laughs> is it? I know Brands Hatch. But is it? Now there's the question. We're going to start off the day with kind of a bit more performance like I'm used to, let's say. Obviously, I drove... The car inside is, is similar to the car that we drove at Le Mans and WC last year. Um, it's just the, the systems are a bit different. But hopefully it should all be... I mean, I've done some simulation work, but I just haven't physically driven the, the actual car. We've been busy with other stuff. But, um, yeah, like the extra aero and stuff like this should make it easier. That's obviously the plan. Faster, but, but easier. But There's uh, more buttons in there. You've got a DRS button now. Yes, but the Brands Indy circuit, we'd probably be le- <laughs> leaving that one well alone, to be fair. <laughs> I think I'll need the downforce as you go over the crest into paddock, actually, before you lift off. So, so we won't be worrying about that. The, the thing is, there's, uh, we haven't been able to set up all the systems like we normally would do. So I'm more in control of things like the, the boost, the hybrid boost, things like this. So um, there's a little bit more for me to do. But it's not a competition. It's just a demonstration run. We've obviously got to try and go as, you know, show what the car can do. Nick Tandy says this is not a competition run. <laughs> Hang on. Well... We'll see how the car goes in the first run. You know, it's. Um, Are you looking forward to it? I am. Yeah, it's been it's been nearly twelve months yeah. since, or since what was it? Bahrain last year. Since mm. I've actually sat in the in a nine nineteen. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, we'll talk to you afterwards. All right, let's do that. Okay, <laughs> good one. Enjoy. I will. So more from Nick Tandy later on here on this special midweek motorsport series thirteen, episode number thirty four. I'm here at WeatherTech. Raceway Laguna Seca for the IMSA event this weekend, all live on RS2, of course. Uh, on Sunday, beautiful day, uh, very weather very uh, reminiscent of what we have here in California. Not quite as hot, in, in fairness. Uh, on Sunday, there I was at Brands Hatch and bumped into an old friend of ours, Mark Constanturis, who put together an extraordinary collection of Porsches uh, in the back of the paddock in, in Brands Hatch, at Brands Hatch. And 
well, it would have been rude not to have a look down the back of the paddock and a chat about some of the cars. I've been asked already about 10 times today which is my favourite Porsche car and Porsche motorsport moment. This has to be right up there amongst my all-time favourite moments in my life, never mind in Porsche motorsport. I think back to when I first sat in a 917. Kevin Jeanette had a Gulf coloured car that he was restoring a few years ago and I sat in that as the 919 hybrid Evo fires up behind me and of course I slid the perspect across just like Steve McQueen does in Le Mans at the start of the movie but the car that I'm standing in front of now arguably is the most important racing Porsche ever. Why? Because it was the first car to take the overall victory at the Le Mans 24 hours and this is actually the car. It's not a replica it's not an homage this is the chassis this is the car Mark Constanturis has pulled together all of the display cars here uh, for Porsche Club GB and for the Brands Hatch Porsche Festival Mark first of all extraordinary that this gets here under I I presume some secrecy because you know you're not going to tell me who owns it you're not going to tell me where it's come from no it's it's been a a massive coup actually to get the car here because um I think it's been seen, and we know various stories about it, as you've alluded to, but this is the car, and I think this is the only second time it's been seen in the UK this year, and we're really privileged and honoured to have it here. It took a lot of work, um, and we're absolutely delighted to have it, and we can't thank the owner more than enough to actually have the car here to be seen by everyone. I'm sure a lot of people presume that the Porsche Museum had the car, but back in the 70s, it wasn't the done thing to take a car even if it had just won the world's most important motor race it wasn't it wasn't the done thing to to lock it up and put it in a a museum as what happens nowadays with so many race winning cars from the factories this car would have been um, if that was campaigned for the rest of the 1970 season and then probably went into a a customer racing team's hat yeah I think it's really interesting because as you know, you know, a lot of the car, older cars, they fell into private ownership. Whereas nowadays, the factories, the teams, they keep their cars. They lacquer them up after Le Mans with all the, the dirt, the flies. But to actually have such an important car in a private ownership is absolutely fantastic. It's amazing. And I think it's really nice that, to work with some of these owners to actually encourage them to bring their cars out for the public to see them. So to have this car, as you say, such an iconic and important car here, is truly fantastic. Does it run? I mean, is it a runner? I don't know if it actually runs. Um, as you say, we, we didn't announce the car until we knew it was in our ownership for the weekend. Um, so we didn't announce it until Friday once we got custody. But it, it's here as a static. I don't know if it actually runs itself, but it's all there. I was going to say, I can see the engine, I can see the big fan. I know what's underneath that, that engine cover. It's in beautiful, restored condition, probably better than when it raced at Le Mans in, in 1970. You and I have, have watched endurance racing for a very long time. And when I compare this to the cars of today, the first thing I notice is how low, and actually... How small, how narrow it is. No, absolutely. When it arrived on the truck and they opened up the door, we looked at it and thought, is that actually really it? Hang on, somebody sent us a 7 copy. Well, <laughs> it, 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 it's a small car in comparison to the, to the GT1 that's sitting out there or the 919 behind us. 
but it is such a lovely, glorious shape. And I think when I set out to bring these cars together, the aim was to have some of those iconic liveries, which ties in with what Porsche have been doing and Porsche Club GB have been doing on their behalf, running the Resto Racing Championship, yes. where you've got the Resto Racing cars. These are in the early boxes, the 986 boxes. Yes, absolutely. And part of the deal was that they should be in an iconic colour that Porsche raced in. So last night, we managed to pull together the historical car. So we had the Gulf 917. We've got what is known as a Salzburg 917 because of the colour scheme and its history. And then we got those boxsters together and we did a big photograph nice. with them all. And it looked absolutely fabulous. It was really superb to be able to have that opportunity to do it because I don't know when we will do next. No, I know. It's brilliant. I mean, this isn't an annual event, is it? Um, I, I'm going to leave my kit there for a second because there's a lovely security guard here who's going to keep an eye on me. Have a sack. Thank you very much, sir. And let's walk down a couple of the others while we're here. Um, this is like taking a walk through my motorsport past. Right in front of us, the uh, 911 GT1 uh, from Le Mans. Is, that's, is that 98? Is that the 98, 98 car? car? So that's the Le Mans winning car. Aiello McNichon uh, or Telly. Uh, that's the Le Mans winner in the Mobile One colours with the swirls on it. I remember these cars in champion racing colours uh, in, in the States. Uh, in 90, they came over in 99, the Evo. This is an Evo version. Presumably, this is from the factory. This is. We've actually got um, we've got three cars here from the factory. So we've got the GT1, we've got the uh, the Golf livery 917, and then what is a fabulous car for me because it's it just it's totally the opposite to what you assume with Porsche is you've got the Paris Dakar Porsche, yes, yes. which is an amazing piece of kit. But so important that car. We'll talk about that in a minute because it's only coupled down. Uh, uh, this one to me, this was right at the. Uh, very zenith of me getting involved in Le Mans. I mean, I first went to Le Mans in the, uh, the very end of the 80s, but at this time, sort of late 90s into the 2000s, the American Le Mans season was just starting and, and sports car racing, endurance racing was taking off again. This, so this is a really important car for me, and I love the fact it's still got scrapes on the wing mirrors where there's been a little bit of contact and there's a bit of bodywork damage. We come down to another iconic car. This is uh, branded as the uh, Josephette and Derek Bell uh, Gulf liveried car. Um, Porsche have had some great liveries down through they the have, years. Yeah. And of course, this is the 917 with the two fins without the big uh, back end on it. This is the this is a short tail, yeah. So not the LH, which was the long tail Langheck as well, of course. Now this is in in uh, the colours of Gulf uh, with the number 20 on the side. And of course, most people will think of this car colour and livery and number com uh, combination as, as Le Mans and well, Steve McQueen. They do. This is, this is the colour scheme that I certainly relate to when I look at these cars. But I think with this particular one, as being pointed out, not many people have seen them with the fins at the back. Correct. If you look at the, the, um, the other 917 in the Salzburg colours, it doesn't have those fins. Yeah. And you see so many of them in that shape. But to actually have this one here with the fins is really nice. So people can actually can make that comparison between the two cars. Looks even smaller somehow sitting outside. Let's walk around these people. I don't want to get in their, their pictures. Now, here's a bit of a different one. And this underlines why there's a Porsche for everybody. Um, because this is a V8 engine Porsche. We've looked at... Uh, V at flat 12s, flat 6s is, is very popular as well. V4 for the uh, LMP1 hybrid cars, just a 2-litre. This is a big V8. Put the engines in the front because this is a 928. And this was a, a, a car that some people said Porsche should never have built. It was meant to take over from the uh, 911. And, of course, it never did. The 911 continued. But great history of competition with these cars. It, it is a good competition history. But I think 
the important thing for today is to actually show that there are these other cars yes. there, that you're not just looking at your 919s and your, your 917s, that you've got a 928, and obviously we've got the GTP, which we'll come to in oh, a minute. But still my beaten heart. <laughs> but I think it's just lovely to see all the models in their different varieties. So you've got race, rally, and you've got the 928s. It's lovely, and it's lovely to see this here. And this is from Porsche Classic. Yeah. Um, and the GTPs we've come to, that's also from Porsche Classic. So it's fabulous that they've got involved. I think- and Porsche Classic, we should say, is a um, initiative from Porsche Cars GB where some of their dealerships, some of their Porsche centres, are designated as Porsche Classic centres. And, and there's a huge amount going on with these guys, not only in new uh, parts that have been remanufactured. There's now three volumes of, of uh, Porsche new old parts, and that ranges from everything from 356 right through to the air-cooled cars like I've got with the 993. But the, every year there's a little project that gets taken on. I remember it was uh, 968 a couple of years ago. That 928 that we've just been looking at has been restored. This GTP, again, this is a front, what's called a front-engine Porsche, called a transaxle car, uh, based originally on what would have been the 9 44 and then and then obviously pulled out to IMSA regulations with the big almost like what we in Europe would have called group 5 bodywork on it it is fabulous and the bit that I love best is if you come around the back right come on then all right, hang on. See, I love Mark for this. We should do this more often. Oh, look at that. Yes, that's the that's what you I'm can, talking about. You can see the original shape of the car, yep. and then because the tyres are so much wider, they're monstrous tyres, both front and rear. We'll just flare the arches and just bolt them on the side, so you can actually see from the rear the actual original shape of the car, and these just fabulous real arches. It's fabulous. Scott. And, and it, it was that was done because the regulations allowed it, of course, and you were allowed to have a certain amount of extra width on the cars. The front arches are a, a little bit more um, flared out. In, in sort of bodywork, but that, as you say, that's a, that's bold. That's that looks like something that you would do, you know, almost do in your own garage, doesn't it? Well, it does absolutely, and I. But think it worked. It does work, and I think the interesting story about the way the cars are converted from race to road is further on down. We've got an exceptionally rare car that's very rarely seen, the Hago Porsche, as yes. it's known. And the owner of it was saying that when he actually restored it and the restorers looked at it, they said, this car has been properly modified. These wheel arches yes. have been properly flared. Done, done by hand, actually. Ab- absolutely. Yeah, by and artisans. It, it's an artwork. It's, it's artful. And then you look at this and you think, well, this is somewhat earlier, but it's fabulous. But, but it worked. Now, you talked about the, the rally raid car. Now, this is very important in a, a lot of ways. Um, first of all... Um, it's the, the shape is a nine, effectively a nine five nine H um, on on steroids. I love this shape. I always love this shape. Um, the rally car obviously is uh, looks like it's it's standing on the the bodywork looks like it's standing on the top of a small step ladder. It's got the big <laughs> big wheels with the huge sidewalls on them. But the key thing about this car is this was four wheel drive. Absolutely, and I think the bit that. I love about them is that you see these pictures of them racing across the, the deserts and as you say they are jacked up I know rally cars uh, that do the Paris Dakar now or various incarnations of it they are massively sort of widened and, and expanded in all directions whereas this it looks like a 959 it's jacked up it's got monstrous wheels on it and it and it goes out there and it does its stuff. And again, it's, this is a, I take it this come that's just come from Porsche factory, has it? Because it, this this looks absolutely original. This is this is one of the museum cars, which I don't think is seen that often. Oh because my god! Look at the interior. 
Yeah, I think it's important, again, as we say, you've got to show the disciplines that Porsche did, that it is not just, you know, sports... Can't, I, can't conv- I can't convey this on radio, but there's something about the smell of old competition cars, isn't there? There is, and actually, when you, when you look at this, and the thing I found um, yesterday with the 917 Salzburg when it came, was the steering wheel. Yeah. There's so much history on that steering wheel. And the wheel. people who've held it. Absolutely. The people who held it, the people who sat in that seat. And I think those are the two You touched the steering parts. wheel, didn't you? I, I touched the steering wheel. <laughs> yeah. I had to steer it. Yeah, cool. Someone had to put it in the garage. Yes, exactly. You, you talk about the different disciplines, though. I mean, that's really important when you look at something like this. But Porsche, you know, right from the earliest days of Porsche streetcars, um, th- there was no marketing budget. Dr. Ferdinand Porsche didn't have one, so he went racing, or he got other people to go racing. And, and that, to me, you know, that's the essence of Porsche and why Porsche is so different in some respects from any other... Um, manufacturer because there's been Porsches for 70 years which means there's been Porsches racing for, for 70 years this is a very special car uh, this is a 956 Derek Bell and Stefan Belloff's um, I, I think we can probably say Rothmans because that, that's what it is it has to say racing uh, nowadays um, I mean we're going back to the early and mid 80s on that car um, just extraordinary piece of kit and again for people of a certain age of which we fit into yeah. this is absolutely right up our our strasser isn't it oh absolutely this this is one of my absolute favorites and i think in the rothmans colors it is an absolute stunning shape and this this particular car i've been very lucky to have been able to have it for a number of events that i've organized and to have it here again for the 70th but also to actually have a 962 as well and they're both Derek bell cars because of course we have to remember as being brits that Derek bell is exceptionally successful if not the most successful British driver with Porsche and and you know that history continues with Nick Tandy who's who's here today sorry I'm just going to run through somebody shot here oh just just another one of the uh, the 911 uh, Evos this is one of the uh, British GT cars if I remember rightly oh no, no it's not actually this is this isn't another Le Mans car well actually this has got a, a lot of incarnations and I, I I can't remember the whole history of it but I when um, Mark produced the car and said look you, you know you can have Mark Sumter Paragon Mark Sumter Paragon yeah you know, he looks after it. It's an absolutely fabulous car. And people relate to the PlayStation for obvious reasons. But also, um, if we're lucky, Mark will actually come and tell us about it because there is so much history to it. Mark is the best one to tell you all about it. Perfect Mark. time to turn up, Mark. Hello, nice to see Hi, you again. You? Very well. Tell me a little bit about this car. This is in Le Mans colours from 1997. What's, uh, what's the history on this, uh, this 911? Uh, this 911... And it's not an Evo, is it? It is an It Evo. is an Evo. Yeah. It must have been yeah. the first yeah. year of the Evo. Of course yes. it was, 97. Yeah. Yeah, so it was new April 97 to Con- Franz Conrad. Uh, so they, they took it to Le Mans, and, and he actually drove the car with um, some of his pals, I think. You know, it wasn't massively competitive, but yeah, it was in his colours for the first few months. Oh, yes, teal, blue, and white. That's it, yeah. Then it was um, JMB in the Marlborough colours. Yeah. Um, with, um, yeah, um, Collard yeah. driving it. Um, and he swapped hands like three times in the first year, so Lava got hold of it by the well, end. That's of what it. happened, though, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and and of as you know, of the cars, they weren't quick enough in the 993 um, livery or, or, or production cars. So seven of the nine went back, and this one went back and had the evolution. Right. Um, and ah, then, right. yeah, then it uh, it raced with Bob Wallach in '98 for a couple of couple of rounds, but it retired sort of mid 1998. So it only had a very short racing career. 
in those days, of course, as we said to Mark earlier, you know, cars coming out of the factory into, I mean, Porsche's always had a great history of, of providing customer cars. That history continues today. In fact, pretty much everybody who does customer cars model themselves on the Porsche way, way of doing things. Um, it's interesting now, though, isn't it, when you think back? And you must have had some cars through your hands where you think, oh, God, if we'd only kept that one. Yeah, at least I've kept this one. <laughs> you, did, you did well. How long have you had this one? Uh, I bought this in 1997, and it was, uh, it was, you know, at that stage, it was obviously a factory-built racing car, but it was just an old racing car. Yeah. There was nothing you could do with it, yeah. you know, um, and I bought it just because I loved the look of it and I loved the shape, and I remember being here in, when, they first, when they first came out. I remember seeing all telly and can't remember who else it was but they both came out the pit lane and I was standing at Paddock Corner so I, I always loved this car it's really my sort of era of watching that era of sports cars I was saying to Mark earlier on I was just going to the States the American Le Mans series was just about to start 98 99 first particular Mans in 1998 it was a real upswing of of GT and endurance racing which really hasn't stopped since then we've been riding away for for quite a while Absolutely, yeah. Obviously, the the difference now is that you can buy a GT car from Porsche, but you're not going to be buying a 919. No. Well, obviously, they're not producing them anymore, no. but they were never a customer car. Yeah. So, in this in this era, you could run at the front of it as a customer, you know, with a customer team. Does Le Mans need to go back to that? I mean, that's the sort of idea that the ACO and the WEC are talking about in terms of the sort of GTP style cars that they pro- the, the, the rules that they're proposing for the, the next rules change, these sort of hypercar type things that will be available to customers. Is that the right way to go? I absolutely think so, yeah. I think that, you know, with, with uh, the, the likes of Rebellion and, you know, the, 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 the well-run teams, it would be great to see them able to race at the front. And um, Paragon I mean, Porsche coming back? <laughs> it would be nice, but no, I don't think so. To, a little bit more generally, Mark, on, on where we are now with this Porsche Festival today, uh, it's, it's not an annual event, and in some ways it's, it's better for that, I think. It, it's been a, a few years since it's been here. We had the 956 firing up alongside us for a little bit of uh, Porsche background music. Porsche are a very special brand, aren't they? Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Well, you can see it all here. You don't really have to speak, but, you know, you just walk around here. It's just amazing. And the, the, the great thing with Porsche is that, obviously, we're into it with a sort of racing background, but there's, there's guys here that, you know, enthusiasts that are here basically to look at the uh, 50s and 60s, 356s and things like that. Um, you know, there's... there's it, 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 it brings this is a great event because it brings the racers together with the concourse people and, and, and all of the Porsche enthusiasts in terms of I mean the other thing about Porsche and I know this because I've got a couple of street Porsches road going Porsches you can still get everything for them pretty much as well how do you how do you find getting parts for, for the 911 Evo yeah good yeah we, we did a, we did a full engine rebuild and, and basically built a brand new engine for this car and all of the parts we bought via Porsche we didn't have to make anything um, so some of the uh, I think you know when you get down to like 956s and things some of the parts you have to find new old stock because they but they're getting they're, they're you know as the demands ramping up they are they're always looking and they'll always talk to people about producing you know they're now doing barrels and pistons and things well I, I know where there's brake discs and uprights and all sorts for nine five sixes and nine seventeens i saw them at the uh, porsche center at la the last time i was over there still in the original brown paper i found that extraordinary mark good luck this week i mean thanks for bringing the old girl down thank you very much mark, mark something there with a 911 evo right Need to move away from the noisy car for a moment. Uh, I remember this. This is the uh, British GT winning 
that's a 996 Kelvin Burton Marino Frank Kitty uh, I remember Kelvin winning the uh, Carrera Cup GB and I was commentating on him when he went over the fence as well at Thruxton Lee said about that about the better Felbermeyer Porsche fantastic and the interesting thing about this car is Mark Sumter was actually racing in the same championship that year and he said to me he said I don't want to see that car because all I ever saw of it was his back end the back end and he said where have you put it I said it's in the same garage as you no way <laughs> uh, Felbermeyer Blue that's a classic car from a little bit uh, newer car to 991 uh, the Kenwood Porsche oh my goodness me see how did Porsche get all these great colour schemes? You know, and that's there's something interesting as well, Mark. Out goes Nick Tandy in the Evo. That was what you get here rumbling away. A lot of these cars, you know, we talk about, a lot of people nowadays talk about the, the lack of variety in sports car racing. But you and I came through an era where it was almost Formula Porsche, even at the head of the field, in, at the very front of the field in world sports cars. But we talked about them. All right, this is a Kramer Porsche. That was the team. But we talk about it as the Kenwood Porsche because that's how we distinguished them, because of the liveries. You did. You always distinguished them because of the liveries. And that's how I certainly remember it. And I also, as you say, I remember it as just purely being Porsche a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and then, of course, you get into the later 80s where other marks came in of course we had Jaguar with a silk cut livery but I think there have been some really really famous liveries in motorsport and I certainly believe Porsche came up with some of the best ones too. Well, And they celebrated that of course this year bringing the Pink Pig livery and the Rothmans Racing livery back. Right I want to have a, a look at another couple of cars down here before we let uh, Mark get back to work oh, look at that there's just some gorgeous. Now, here's an interesting car. Another Rothmans car. This is another. Uh, this is a, one of the Pro Drive cars, is it not? This is the uh, the Middle Eastern Rally car. Absolutely. This is from Pro Drive, um, and, and, and you know, Pro Drive have a, a small collection of cars, but they're very good at keeping some really key cars. And this one, not often seen. No. So it's really fantastic that they. It's another been, 911. They allowed us to have it here, but this is. Um, Al Haraji's car, and it's, it's it's fabulous. But it's the difference between this and the Dakar car, yeah. and how you've got okay similar body shapes. That was more 959, but this is obviously much lower, much smaller wheels. But to actually see the two together in the same place, it's lovely to see that. But also, you see you see the differences, but you see the similarities. Yeah, you know, there's no doubt that that's a Porsche. There's no doubt that it's a rear-engine Porsche 911. In this case, just watching the 911 RSR going past as well. Now, here's now this is a very special car. Further on from here, there's all kinds of great stuff. There's the uh, uh, that's the Brumos car that I saw at Luftgekult recently up at Bista. Um, we've got a very interesting prototype there. Is very, that is a, that's a real prototype. The, story, the brief story behind that is uh, the guy. Is that the 550 prototype? I'm not exactly sure exactly which one it is, but it was built by a Porsche dealership and it was found at the back of the garage in, under the dust and old wraps and things. They pulled it out and looked at it thought, this is a bit of a, this is a funny old car. So they got it out and realised what they'd actually found. And it's called the Acrasa and it's based around a Porsche, but it is a prototype. It's the only one. Fantastic. And next to us, another 911. This is the classic 911 uh, 930 shape big wheel tail on the back but this is a very special car indeed this one is this is what's nicknamed as the Hago Porsche now they're, they're again down to what's written on the side of the car the livery absolutely it's down to the livery and again it had a sister car which was the Deduco Porsche and that was in a different colour scheme but styled in the same design 
and that, that car was developed by Walter Roll and Dieter Rochenheisen. And we know where the car is, and sadly we were unable to get it here this weekend, which would have been the first time those two cars would have been oh. together. But this is the car that has managed to be held on together and is here. And this is the one which we alluded to earlier, how they tripped it back to restore it, and they said about the wheel arches, these have been professionally done. There's something special about this car. So it was originally found with a Rothmans colour scheme on it, funnily enough. Um, but when he went to restore it, they started to peel back the paintwork and they actually found this colour scheme underneath it. So you'd they, never, that would never happen nowadays because you, you, I remember when I was working at RML, even the touring cars, if you were going to put more paint on it, you took the old paint off. And of course, nowadays, a lot of it's uh, vinyl or, or some kind of uh, wrap anyway. It was all about weight saving yeah. then. But the other fascinating thing about this is when they lifted the carpets, what, from what they thought was a race car, or, uh, just a normal road car, they found all the fixing points for a roll cage and thought, hang on a minute, there's something special about that. And basically they researched it and discovered that it was a V Hago car that they thought had long disappeared. And here it is today. Right, you, I, I know you're going to... I, I know we've talked a lot about the, the Salzburg, the 23, the 1970 winning, Le Mans winning car, but which one of these gives you the most pleasure to see here other than that one? Because that's quite a special car. Yeah, it is, and it's been an absolute pleasure to have actually secured it. It's... I'm one of those people that loves to see everyone out here enjoying themselves. And we've got so many different cars out here uh, from all different areas of motorsport. People are loving it. I love to see it. The sun is shining. It's, it's really, really difficult. But if I'm not allowed to choose the Salzburg car, then I've got to choose the 956. Definitely. Okay. See you, Mira. Thanks, Mark. Mark Constitution. Just want to finish this a little bit off. This is Jackie over here, who I'm going to uh, men- mention, um, from ProDrive. Thank you for bringing this, this lovely car from the, the ProDrive collection. People forget the ProDrive and Porsche connection, don't they? Absolutely. It's so important. It was the start of ProDrive, 1984, Silverstone. And so it's great to see this car out here now. Very, very important car. Uh, you've got a, a a very nice little collection up off the the M40 there. Is this car normally on display? Yes, it is. Yeah, along with the 6R4, of course, the same livery of Rothmans, and then BMW M3, and of course Subaru. Yeah. Can't forget the Subaru. That's what everybody thinks. Absolutely. That that's the big one, and that that, that colour of blue, which is synonymous with yeah. that. Interestingly, of course, flat four engine rather than a, or a boxer four engine rather than a flat six engine. Uh, yeah. in, in this one, I love seeing this car out. It's such a, an iconic shape. How's things at Pro Drive at the moment? Going through, I saw that they were um, changing the outside of the factory when I was up there the other day. Yeah, we've got a refurb, so we've been there now nearly four years, and we're expanding. So inside, we're having offices built. Um, the heritage cars are just going into storage until January. So I've gone up to Aston Martin at Gaydon for four months. Uh, but it'll be better and uh, people have to come and have a look around. Do I get an invitation again? Always. You are always welcome. Thank you. I'll spend a very quiet day where I just blubber rather than saying anything reasonably sensible. Jackie, thanks for bringing this, this car to the Porsche My Festival pleasure. of Brands, Brands Hatch. Anything catching your eye as far as the Porsches are concerned? Oh, everything. It's, it's unbelievable, isn't it? I was just saying, the sun, the smell, the noise. Oh, my God, I'm in heaven. Absolutely. Fabulous. Nick Tandy has just got out of the uh, 919 Evo. It's very, very noisy with all the lovely Porsches on the track. Um, there's a big smile on your face. Did, do you wish you had that much power when you were racing the WEC? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> The thing is with this, it's uh, because you're not limited to the allocation per lap, 
you know, you can kind of use it all, 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 and then have a cool down and recharge the batteries and let the engine and the brakes cool down, this sort of thing, and then go again. So, Is it very different from the car when you drove it? No, it's not so different. Everything's moved, everything's a little bit better. Obviously, the power is quite a bit more, uh, and the aero grip is quite a step more, but everything else is, is very similar. The car drives very similar. Um, it's just you have this allocation of power. <laughs> it's so much more open that, uh, to use, whereas you're restricted so much when we're racing as to what you can do on each straight or how much you need to har- then re-harvest the energy at the next corner and keep the, keep the energy levels topped up to a certain degree. Here you can do it's a bit like we used to do in qualifying. Use everything, ba- use everything out of the battery and everything out of the engine, and then recharge and go again. So, but more power is always good, isn't it? I mean, you were punching out of clearways there, something rotten. What sort of speeds are you approaching paddock now? I I I don't dare to look. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I can have a I'll check on the uh, on the telemetry, the data that comes out of the car because it feels fast. You know, and uh, it's it's one of these you can't. 180 mile an hour plus, you think? I I think it probably is. Yeah, (laughs) don't quote me on that just yet. But um, we we expected speeds of 300 kilometers plus, and it certainly feels like it. Um, I know the car is. I think it's geared to to a maximum of about 370 k's. Uh, well, that's, adi- in- that's adequate, isn't well, it? Exactly. Well, we're in, you know, we're in top gear here at Brand, so uh, well, we are, and it's uh, <laughs> it's still pulling. That's the thing. It's just I get to a point where I have to kind of hit the brakes, and, and then yeah, you get into the s- corner, and you think, oh, sh- I've, I've slowed down. I've slowed this down way too early. How quick is Paddock then? Uh, it's fifth gear actually. So this morning when I was being a bit more tame, uh, we were just dropping one gear to six, or from six to fifth. But uh, now we're going a bit faster down the straight. You go from seventh to fifth gear. It's, I'm sure the car would take much more than I'm going to throw at it today because there's got to be some margin built in. And the last thing I want to do is put this lovely bit of kit in the, in the gravel. But uh, Well, not, the last, not the last run anyway. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Mate, it's been absolutely amazing watching you going around there. Uh, and hopefully we'll get a little bit more later on. Uh, you'll do this again if asked, won't you? Absolutely. This is, uh, you know, this is this is playtime in our job. Absolutely. It's uh, <laughs> the racing has its own demands, and the racing's fun, but there's a lot of other stuff that goes with it. Whereas this is just come here and have a hoot and drive the car as fast as it'll go. And uh, nice to be doing this on home ground at Brands, and it's at home ground on Brands, which means uh, people that I know that don't normally get to see me drive racing cars can come and watch. And uh, I get to go home on a Sunday night, which is all also very good. Nice. Still using the Formula Ford line of paddock, wait until that en- entry road from the left <laughs> from the left hand side, like your Formula yeah, Ford yeah, does. You're not wrong, John. Actually, you use the pit entry or the pit exit line as your guide point. Yeah, it's all the same. Whether it's Formula <laughs> Three, Formula Ford, Carrera Cup, or LMP1. Cheers, mate. No worries. Well, delighted to say that I'm joined once again here on the Radio Show Limited Network of Channels by David Sirisaki. David, welcome to Brands Hatch. Not your first time here. Not my first time here. I, my first time here was for a British touring car event maybe six or seven years ago. So it's nice to be back, though. An ex- first of all, we should say, an extraordinary gathering of Porsches. Have you picked one out yet that I, you'd take home? I picked a few out. <laughs> I don't know. Am I allowed to take a few home? Well, there's a couple of old ones that I really like. But, uh, yeah, yeah, this is a fantastic event. Great weather. Uh, good crowd, and uh, it's pretty exciting. We're going to get to see the, the P1 car go out pretty soon. Well, the, the 919 Evo uh, 
effectively the farewell tour for this car is happening at the moment, the tribute to it. Um, but actually, just behind us, from 1998, the Le Mans winning at 911 Evo, resplendent in Mobile One livery, just underlining really how long it is that Mobile One and Porsche and Porsche Motorsports have, have, had, have had a relationship. Yeah, actually, it's over two decades, believe it or not. So it's, uh, it goes back a long ways, and uh, we work very closely with Porsche and in the, in the motorsports group, but also on the commercial side of the business for many, many years. And that's, uh, that's a testament of, of our relationship. It's a testament of the technology between both companies. And uh, to last for over 20 years is pretty remarkable. Those very, very well versed in, in motorsport knowledge will know that the the uh, the prototype that Porsche built to replace that car with the V10 engine, which actually then never raced, when it was tested in carbon fibre, the only thing it had on it was Mobile One. That was the only decals that it had on it when it tested. That was that was right. I actually have a model of that car. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're a proper you're a proper motorsport enthusiast as well, aren't you? I do have a diecast model sitting on my desk of that car. But yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable that the relationship has gone on for that long. But I think it really tells you the the uh, the back background of it, and that we work very closely with Porsche Motorsports and the Porsche team to develop and work on new technologies and the new, those new, ne- new technologies end up in our consumer products and that helps us with the consumer products that we sell to Porsche around the world. And how has that changed then from looking at the technology underneath the back end of that 911 Evo that uh, Laurent Aiello, Alan McNish and Stefan Ortelli took to the win at Le Mans in 1998 and the 911 uh, LMP, excuse me, the 919 LMP hybrid Evo that is about to go out on the track with Nick Tandy behind the wheel. I mean, conceptually, they're similar because they're both based on a Le Mans car that had to go 24 hours. But this thing is a hot rod now, this new 919 Evo. Yeah, I think I think every year you've got evolution in motorsports. You're getting lighter weight designs, lighter weight technology and, and materials. You're pushing RPM limits all the time. You're pushing compression ratios in the engine. Everything is evolving step by step, and you're seeing everything kind of get smaller and smaller from an engine compactness standpoint, yet the power is growing at the same time. So it's uh, it really is uh, difficult on the oil to perform as well as it needs to be because you, you couldn't take the old technology and just throw it into a modern car because the car and the, and the engine has evolved so much that temperatures are different, the pressures are different. Everything involved in the engine is, is a little bit harder to deal with than it was uh, 20 years ago. And yet, underlining the flexibility of Mobile One fully synthetic oil, the lubricants that are in the Evo version of the 919 hybrid which is effectively now a sprint car it's almost like a drag racer actually because it's doing one or two or three laps at a time the team told me this morning that that's exactly the same specification as they used to do the 24 hours of Le Mans yeah they're not changing anything we actually talked about doing some very unique things for this this uh, tribute tour and say okay let's come up with the best technology we can try to get optimum performance and speed and we said no let's just leave it leave it the way it is you guys work on the, the technology of what you want to do for these short sprint type events uh, I don't think we need to change anything from the lubricant standpoint let's just stay with it and that's exactly what they did and it's 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 actually a good testament of the performance of the product we didn't have to change anything to be able to manage some of the really pushing the limits on the engine and doing uh, fast track events and fast speed events on the on the Porsche 
But the engine is making almost half as much again in brake horsepower than it was at Le Mans. And you're telling me there's no difference in the makeup of the Mobile One that's in that car now as when it was having to run 24 hours at Le Mans? No, no difference at all. And actually, we uh, we really have a lot of built-in technology into, into Mobile One that allows us to go further in limits in temperature and further limits in, in, in pressures, anything that's involved in the engine where, where you would think, okay, you're going to have to treat, do something different with the engine where we're modifying things on the engine to perform differently, and we didn't see any reason to do that. And that, that really shows you kind of the extra effort that we put into the product to say, okay, you can use this product in your own car. You don't have to worry about anything. You can run it as, as, uh, as hard and as fast as you can in your own consumer car, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to protect the engine very well. And that's the point, isn't it? Because we're talking here about extremes. We're talking about extraordinary circumstances, either at Le Mans or here, 750 horsepower out of a, a two-litre turbocharged engine. I mean, that, both you and I scratch our heads when, when people tell us that. And that technology is going into every Porsche road car that's sold in the UK and around the world. My 968 in getting a service at the moment, which is a 1996 90, yeah, 96 car, that's, that's had Mobile One in it ever since it was built. My 993, which is an oil-curled car, let's people call them air-curled, but they're oil-curled, that car has had Mobile One in it since it's... Do we really get the benefit of that as Porsche owners? Yeah, you get the benefit of the of the work and the background work we do and the technology of the product that we put into motorsports events, and that's where a, a lot of the innovation and, and even the molecular innovation of the product, we're doing small things on the product to make it perform better, to protect the engine components better, and those little things are the, are, are the pieces that get into the consumer product eventually and gradually as we evolve the Mobile One technology that goes into the consumer cars. In terms of what we do, um, the, the Mobile One that we buy over the counter, how different or similar then is that than the racing products that you produce for your partners? It, it's actually very similar. In some cases, it's the same product that we use in the consumer cars and in the race cars. There are some modifications we do depending on the team, depending on the environment. Formula One, for example, is a good uh, area where it's bespoke right from the beginning. But in, in road cars and in sports cars, you tend to use the same technology that you would use in, in the consumer vehicles. Maybe small variations, but and that's only because we're testing things. We're testing different different chemicals and different additives within the oil. So we maybe do something different in the race car, but it's really not dramatically different than the than the oil used in your, your own car. I was explaining to someone actually as recently as a couple of days ago about viscosity. And they were saying, explain to me about viscosity. And I said, I can't explain to you about viscosity because I'm, I'm not a molecular chemist. So I don't really know that sort of stuff. But what I do know is that on my Porsche, I've gone from having probably a 10 or a 15 weight, 10 to 15, 40, down to a 0 W40 right. in, in the space of the eight years that I've owned that car. What practical benefit am I getting from that, particularly here in the UK? Yeah, that, that's kind of an innovation of the... Of the polymers that we put into the oil and the, the PAO chemicals or the PAO base stocks that we use. And as we've evolved those in the use of an engine oil, we've, we've been able to take from a 1550 or a 1540 to a 1040 to a 040 and evolve that same product that has lighter weight consistencies, but at the high temperatures, it still protects your engine that it needs to at the, at the, at the higher levels. So crucially, particularly here in the UK, where ambient temperature is, all right, a bit different this summer but generally speaking is pretty low you, you're not waiting for the for the oil 
to get less viscous, to get unsticky, to start running around? No, actually, at cold temperatures, that's the advantage. You turn the car on, the car's, the, the oil's lubricating through the engine rapidly. There's no, no time when the oil is not circulating through the engine. So it's rapid performance, it's quick performance, because the oil is, is thin and doing what it needs to do at cold temperatures, but when it gets hot at the true operating temperatures, the protection range, then it's still acting as, as the uh, viscosity it needs to be. Isn't that magic of some description? It works when it's cold, but it works still the same as a, an old 2050 would. Do. You know, I'm old enough to remember single viscosity oils, 2050, and that's what you used to put in. Some old cars still need that. I understand that. But this is magic. This is, this is stuff that was science fiction not so long ago. A, a little bit, but I, I can tell you the best way that I've uh, explained that is that the, the oil itself is just made up of molecules. And in the case of a, of a synthetic oil like Mobile One, every molecule is the exact same size. So we, can, we don't have to have these mixed molecules which tend to act differently at different temperatures. We can create the molecule exactly the way we want it so we can make it perform in the temperature range that we want it to. So it's really an evolution of the, of the molecules and evolution of the base stocks that have allowed us to do what we're doing today. So this is engineering just the same as bolting things together but this is engineering at a molecular level you're talking about here absolutely it's exactly exactly what it is 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 looking at the molecules themselves and figuring out what do we need to to get performance out of the product and what kind of of chemistry do we need to get it to perform the way we need it to and that's really what our guys are doing all the time is they're looking at chemistry and saying this this molecule would work well if we can manufacture it and have the ability to use it and mix as well with the with the rest of the oil and then we try to seek out manufacturing, whether it's our own manufacturing sites, to say, hey, it'd be nice if you guys could make something that looks like this. And, and you know, a good, good, good number of the times our, our ExxonMobil chemists come up with that. In terms of the challenges for not just motor racing, but street cars, road cars now, the, the Evo, actually the 919 Evo, is, is a pretty good test bed because hybrid technology is something that isn't going away. Um, I look, going to Le Mans this year, I took a 4-litre V8 turbocharged Porsche that also had a hybrid. Is that the next challenge for you to, to work with the integration of hybrid systems and, and how that changes how the engines work? For example, the turn on and off more often, stop start and hybrid technology. That's the sort of thing that old oils wouldn't have been able to deal with. Yeah, I, I, it doesn't, doesn't change dramatically the, the product that we're using today. I mean, start, stop, yeah, put a little, puts a little more pressure on the, on the oil. But um, our, I think our evolution is really what's going to happen with the, the electric part of, of the vehicle. There's still a gearbox. There's still a component yes. that you need to lubricate. You want to make it as efficient as you possibly can. And there's some evolution in gear oils that are, that are going on right now. And then I think the other part of it is can you do cooling of a motor with an oil and, and cooling, instead of using a coolant, a water-soluble coolant in the motor, can you use an oil that can use Use, uh, be using the gearbox and the cooling of the motor. So uh, in the electric motor or in the ICE, in the internal combustion engine? In the electric engine? motor. So wow. if you had a compact unit on a car, for example, you don't want to have a, a lot of weight and have all these extra components. Right. If you had a compact unit that was an electric motor and a gearbox, is there the potential to have one housing to have a lubricant that can do both, or a product that can do both cooling and gear protection? Well, you're talking about looking like Sir Alec Isigonis did with the Mini when he put the gearbox in the sump of the transverse-engined car and made that a compact unit. You're talking about the same thing about the hybrid technology now, and that's a big leap forward, is it? I think so. I think that's one of the new technologies that we'll be developing and working on, and uh, matter of fact, we're, we're already working towards that today.
I love talking to you. I really do. It really gets me excited about what's to come. And we don't have to compromise on technology or performance or longevity in the years to come. David, thanks for, for joining us. Enjoy all these lovely Porsches. All right. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Nick Tandy has had a couple of runs in the 919 uh, hybrid Evo, the Langheck, the long tail version of the car in Porsche parlance extraordinary thing Nick um, I know this isn't the place for it to stretch its legs but my goodness me just watching it looks quick how does it feel from inside the car well it is quick because I've had a look on the, the data and even in our short run and the second session we're doing 296 kilometers top speed at the end of the straight so I think we're going to try and break the magical 300 I'm not sure how many times that's ever been done on the Brands Hatch circuit especially the Indy circuit <laughs> possibly never so, um, well, I was here when Indy were here, and when Cart were here, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a fuel save race that. So it, it wasn't as quick as it, it might have been. They looked pretty impressive, but I've got to say, you look quick, you look quick, and you look like you're leaning on the car through, certainly through paddock. Yeah, I can imagine that the probably in race trim, the, the quick cars like the Indy cars that were here were probably pushing a little bit harder than we are. Yes. Um, obviously, we're racing ourselves as such, and the doing a bit of a time trial but uh, certainly we're giving it everything the car's got on the straights and when you come out of clearways now I'm pre-selecting the the, the boost um, pre You know I have no idea what that means don't you? Well before I was kind of waiting until I was in a straight line before hitting the button and then off we go Okay. where now I'm kind of pre-selecting it in the middle of the corner so when I go back to throttle it's there instantly Right. so we're picking Ooh, up speed exactly. like you can't believe I like that. and uh, it's, it's quite difficult actually to keep an eye on the shift lights and shift up when the engine powers at its time so uh, yeah it's uh, it's going well go and have another run um, 38.9 on hand timing I'm told 38.1's the fastest time ever round here I know you're not looking for a time but you're competitive aren't you we're competitive <laughs> That's all he's saying. <laughs> yeah, Come on, get ready. But well, there's no official timing, as you know. No, no, none. None at all. Nick Tandy talking to me on Sunday before he was bolted in, strapped in, to the 919 LMP1 Hybrid Evo. He was actually dragged away from the end of that interview. That's why it was so short there, to get into the car for his last run. So did he beat 38-1? Not something that Porsche said they were going to do. We'll ask him later on this week because, of course, he's here at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca for IMSA, which we'll be covering uh, here this weekend uh, on RS2, part of the RSL network of channels, Radio Show Limited network of channels. Uh, and, and, of course, that car, the 919 Langheck, as, as I called it there, the long tail version of the car, will be here for its final ever public appearance before Porsche tell us it's going to the museum in Stuttgart, uh, never to be run again, here at Rennsport later on this month. And we'll be here for RSL to cover some of that with some very special programming, uh, not just from here at Rennsport, but also between Rennsport and Petit Le Mans. We've got something very, very interesting coming up as we make the trek the trip across from here at uh, Laguna Sega, where the Tech Raceway, over to uh, Road America. Right, a little bit of a different programme tonight uh, for various reasons, but my thanks to uh, Nick for coming on earlier on, and 
everyone who made me so very welcome at Brands Hatch at the weekend, including Porsche Club Great Britain, uh, the Porsche team behind that 919 uh, hybrid Evo, Nick Tandy, who gave of his time, Olivier, uh, a race engineer, David Surisaki from Mobile One, of course. And there will be some coverage of that weekend on Mobile One, the grid. So uh, it's all over the world. So check your local listings for details of when that next programme uh, comes up. Shea Adam and Jeremy Shaw will be joining me here this week at Mazda Raceway Laguna Seca uh, for our full live and exclusive coverage of the IMSA weekend here. And um, I'm going to leave you with a little bit of noise. This is the uh, Porsche LMP1, the 919 uh, hybrid Evo with all of that extra power just gently ticking over in the background. And there's no time to explain this because the llama is going for its earplugs. I was standing right behind this when it fired up and was ticking over before Nick went out for his last run. Enjoy this and join us this weekend from here at Laguna Seca for the IMSA event. And I can't wait to see this 999 hybrid around this circuit. Bye for now. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.